Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am an associate clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Jeffrey Bove. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes reviews really help others find out about chiropractic science. So if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. I'd like to share a review by someone from Canada with the nickname Mama Rouge, who says, Love this show. This is a fantastic show with up-to-date, clinically relevant research. I love hearing from the original researchers, and Dr. Dean does a stellar job guiding the interview and keeping it interesting and informative. Well, thank you for that review, Mama Rouge. I look forward to sharing your flattering iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or by purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. We are also on social media, including Facebook and Instagram, so please connect with us there. All right, on to the podcast. Okay, well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Jeffrey Bove. Jeffrey Bove, DCPhD, is a graduate of Hampshire College, Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He is currently a professor at the University of New England in Bidford, Maine. Dr. Bove's research has focused on the effect of inflammation on small diameter axons within peripheral nerves, a topic directed by founding chiropractic principles. He also studies the effects of manual therapies on common painful conditions such as repetitive motion disorders and postoperative visceral adhesions. Dr. Bove, I'm really excited to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I always ask my guests first thing, uh, how did you become interested in becoming a chiropractor? Well, like many of us, we had a problem. We failed in the medical system, and then we had success at a chiropractor's office, and this happened with a, um, a back injury um, I sustained um, during ballet dance lessons and practice um, with lifting um, women that aren't as small as you think ballet dancers really are. And um, I had hurt my back. I had been told by an orthopedist there was nothing wrong with me at all. I had intermittent back pain as a very, very fit young adult. And my mother suggested I go to a chiropractor, and I did. And the short story is uh, three treatments later, I was 100% pain-free with information about how to stay that way. And then I started doing some research. This is while I was in undergraduate school. And um, did some research and ended up going to Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College. I mean, but most of the people, when we... Um, I remember when we, uh, there were 110 new students and at an orientation, I think about a third of us had had that type of experience to get us into chiropractic. 
Yeah. I think those numbers may be, uh, maybe going down a little bit. It seems like a lot of, a lot of people haven't ever been to a chiropractor now when, when they get to chiropractic school, at least that's my perception. It should be a requirement. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it seems like that experience is, uh, is, is extremely valuable nonetheless to, uh, to, to get to before would, you see a chiropractor. I, I, yeah. I would add the caveat that you might want to go to a specific chiropractor that someone approved, because as you know, there's quite a lot of um, diversity in the field. Yeah, for sure. I, I feel, I, I feel actually the truth is I wouldn't go to the chiropractor. I went to the person who got me into the career. I wouldn't go to that person now because I've become um, biased about different practice types as I think we all do. Um, but I had outstanding results with, with this person and I've had outstanding results with other people up in, um, you know, still, I mean, I use chiropractors when I feel like I need it as I'm sure you do. Absolutely. And I'm very picky. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you, uh, went to CMCC, you, you graduated. What, um, what made you want to get into, uh, research career and also along the way did did you practice before you got into research sure so i i moved down i'm from maine and my wife's from maine and we moved to north carolina with the concept of we wanted a longer summer we wanted rural coastline i wanted a small you know family practice style office and we wanted a place that has really good laws that are supportive of chiropractic practice and north carolina fit that that bill so I moved to North Carolina. I opened a solo practice in Pittsburgh, North Carolina. Um, and it didn't take very long until I realized that being adept as a chiropractic technician, which I think I was quite adept as um, in that role, I wasn't very much interested in the business or the promotional aspect. And in 1990, in 1989, there was quite a lot of a lot more animosity towards chiropractors by the medical field as a whole. Something that I think I had um, quite a strong hand in helping with um, from about then forward. So I and I also and this is kind of a stock joke I make. I was very uncomfortable not knowing enough. And what I say now is that after what is it 28 years later, I'm very comfortable not knowing enough. <laughs> There we go. I knew I'd get a laugh. Um, but still, when I then I, I decided to, um, I, I knew I was going to go back to school. I thought about medical school, and then I just passed the boards and done all that business, and I didn't want to repeat things. Um, I decided to become an anatomy professor, and then I got hooked really quickly into the research aspect and the idea of creating new knowledge as opposed to um, learning, learning more knowledge. Um, and while I was in grad school for four years at University of North Carolina, I worked as a locum tenens doctor in about 24 or 25 different practices. And it was really interesting to be one week doing experiments where I was characterizing paraspinal nociceptors on rats. And this is where we use uh, very tedious techniques to record from one nociceptor neuron at a time in a um, 
terminally anesthetized animal that's um, just anesthetized, so you're listening to a living neuron within a living organism, and then go into an office the next week and do the same sort of palpation on a human being, except instead of action potentials, I would hear them tell me and guide me to what their symptoms were when I stressed tissues, using the same kind of stresses that I was using in the laboratory the week before. And I thought that was a very fascinating and fun to do. So I worked in a, my own practice for a while. I worked as an associate in grad school periodically, but I worked about six or eight weeks a year in other people's practices, really busy practices and, you know, the, you know um, some very diverse techniques that I'd have to go in and try to provide the care to emulate the provider, not necessarily what I wanted to do. It was, it was very educational. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a similar experience. I did a number of locum uh, positions here in Ohio as I was going through uh, my graduate program and pretty invaluable experience. And as you say, lots of variety, different techniques and, you know, different expectations on the part of the patient based upon what kind of chiropractor they had seen in the past. So yeah, uh, very, very interesting. So I'm excited to talk about your research because it's just, uh, it, it blew my mind as I was reading some of the uh, studies that you've produced over the years. I, I thought I understood some of the studies previously when I had read them, but I don't think I paid close enough attention. So <laughs> hopefully you can uh, help me out as we go through <laughs> today. I think I do understand them a little bit better uh, several years later. So um, now, Dr. Bove, you've been published in uh, a variety of excellent journals, including Journal of Physiology, Journal of Neurophysiology, Experimental Neurology, PLOS One, Pain, JAMA, and, and so many others. I'd like to find out about what you've been up to during your uh, research career, your, your interests, uh, and we'll certainly talk about some of uh, your specific papers that you've published. Uh, that I think uh, can really help out chiropractors and their patients. And I'm sure we'll have some uh, discussion along the way. But um, how about we get started with this first paper, which seemed to to really propel you into this uh, the subject area. And that was uh, inflammation induces ectopic mechanical sensitivity and axons of nociceptors innervating deep tissues. And this came from Journal of Neurophysiology, 2003. Um, and it seems that a common theme of your research is to discuss inflammation leading to mechanical sensitivity of these axons uh, that are in mechanically sensitive primary sensory neurons. So perhaps this paper can get us into you, uh, the mindset, uh, your mindset of what uh, your research has been about. So could you tell us about this paper? Well, sure. Um, the f First off... I'll ask you a rhetorical question. Have you ever seen a patient with radiating leg pain or radiating arm pain? Yes. And the answer is yes, of course, every day pretty much, right? Yeah. So why do they have, why do you do a straight leg raise test and the patient reports that it hurts down, not, you know, down into their leg? Or if you do a, um, one of the nerve provocative tests, a median nerve tension test, for instance, or AdSense test, or you you push on someone's brachial plexus above their clavicle and they report reproduction of symptoms into their hand or arm. 
so I was very curious about, I became very curious about that as kind of a secondary um, interest and something that I could approach using uh, research methodology that I was good at, that I knew how to do. But to back up even further, when I applied to graduate school, I was always very, very interested in um, visceral homeostasis and the claims that our forebears used to make, which some were quite, as we know, quite, um, they caused a lot of trouble for our profession. Like if people would, doctors would state they could cure cancer or treat things that we just don't say we treat anymore. But the concept of visceral homeostasis, and which basically arose out of the concept of innate by Palmer, there has to be, it, it, this is over 100 years ago, and maybe he, he was using language that we're not, we don't use now, and it was a very different time. But I could have titled that paper of inflammation-induces ectopic mechanical sensitivity in axons of nociceptors and deep tissues as um, restricted innate causes deep radiating pain. And that's really sticking my neck out right here. But when I studied, the initial um, textbooks we had in chiropractic philosophy were Haldeman's um, classic book on um, spinal manipulation. And we also had the Irvin Core book, Neurobiological Mechanisms of Spinal Manipulation, that was a result of a conference at NIH back in the um, early 80s, I believe. And that was the first time that neurobiologists, physicians from all walks, got together and talked about what could possibly be happening. And a few of our colleagues ended up getting their PhDs with Akio Sato, um, Brian Budgel, and um, Drew, not Drew, Rand Swenson. And they were studying somatovisceral reflexes. So how the, you could have uh, radi um, referred pain to the gut, um, or just how the, 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 the interactions between the soma and the viscera. And I studied those very carefully in the first year, um, and then when I thought about it, and in practice, one of the first patients I had came back after I was after I had treated his thoracic spine and told me that I did, you know, I helped him feel better with his thoracic spinal problem, pain problem, and he came back a couple months later and asked me to fix his indigestion again. I was like, okay, so I didn't don't go around telling everyone I fixed your indigestion. I treated you back, and your indigestion you know, gastric reflux uh, felt better. And then I just started thinking, okay, well, nothing made that much sense to me. What could have, could have, how, if those two things were linked, how could they be linked? So I came up with a hypothesis that his symptomatology, the combination of his thoracic spinal problem and his gastric reflux could be linked if inflammation of his costovertebral joints was changing how the information was being received um, from the affected organ and how the body was reacting to that information. So ectopic means in the wrong place, like an ectopic pregnancy is one that's in the, 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 the wrong place. So mechanical sensitivity in a nociceptor axon is not what you want. So 
and we've all done this as in practice, if you push on an inf a nerve someplace and it causes pain down into the innervation territory, you've activated nociceptors, and that means that's not a normal, that's not a normal axon. That's an, the only thing that does that. There are two things that will cause these ectopic sensitivities, and we some of the papers down below, I mean later on that I did, uh, got for, further to the root of this. But inflammation has a lot of components. One is, it turns out that it reduces axoplasmic transport of the channels that transduce the mechanical energy into an electrical energy that gets transmitted to your spinal cord and then further up. So, in fact, blocking axonal transport, which could be from what we had referred to, you know, 100 years ago as nerve pressure or nerve interference, causes these changes. And that's pretty profound. And I just did the reduce axoplasmic transport with colchicine and vinblastine, which disrupt the uh, transport motors and prevents channels from getting past that point. That was almost on a whim because I knew that I couldn't dissect out all the inflammatory mediators because they, once you mess with the full-blown inflammation, you cause other problems and the body knows how to get around things very, very well. That's why we get used to uh, certain drugs. So this, this started a, a long time before that paper, but I couldn't very well have published it as interference, you know, messing with nerve flow causes radiating pain, and um, it wouldn't have gotten published in, a, in, a, in a, an impacting journal and part of the biomedical uh, literature as, it, as it's become. So that's kind of the long answer to your question, I think. Well, I, I really appreciate that long answer. <laughs> and that's what I was hoping you would give a long oh, answer. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love it. I can talk about this for hours. You know, I love to talk about it. Yeah, I think it's so, very important. Yeah, I think that, that um, uh, the problem with, we don't necessarily have a problem with treatment. We have a problem with uh, diagnostics in our field and in, mo in, in many medical fields as well, but um, we sometimes just throw treatments at things without understanding. So uh, my, my career has been dedicated to helping improve diagnostic um, acumen. Yeah, that's, and that's great. what I just mentioned, palpating the, palpating the peripheral nervous system. If you find tender nerves, they're inflamed. They shouldn't be tender and they shouldn't cause radiating pain. And if you find a place on a nerve that's tender and or causes radiating symptoms, that nerve is inflamed or, or constricted chronically. And the chronic constriction leads to inflammation anyway, because or a static constriction will lead to uh, ischemia, which can uh, lead to inflammation. So um, it's, it's, it's something that I always teach when I do um, continuing education courses is basically palpating the peripheral nervous system and um, that you need to know your anatomy and your mechanics really well to do that. So that's a good challenge. So I want to take that point and I want to just go maybe a little bit deeper, perhaps not for too long, but I want to get the the sense as to what what's going on at the neurophysiological level with the type of inflammation that you're talking about. Uh, is it, you know, it's an immune response of some sort, but what, what are the sodium channels blocked here or what what is going on at the cellular level? Well, that's a good. That's a really good question, and one that I've been working towards ans 
answering, but the this relies on a lot of um, financial commitment from the federal government, which also relies on primarily good reviews by peers, peer reviewers, which I do a lot of as well. Um, the first thing is we do not know yet what the channel or channels are in nociceptors that transduce mechanical to electrical energy. And that seems like something that that's about a bit of a holy grail in the pain field right now. We know what um, heat sensitive channels are like. They're the trip trip channels are heat sensitive uh, and cold sensitive, noxious heat and cold. We know that, for instance, uh, bradykinin is a an inflammatory mediator that's also painful if one were to inject, which I've done before just to see what it feels like, a mixture of bradykinin, serotonin, histamine, and sometimes we add prostaglandin E2 or E1 just for like a little extra spice. If you inject a little bit of that into your skin, um, it hurts. I mean, it stings and it just, it's like, it's serious like a bee sting. Same as if you inject um, hot pepper extract, maybe not as much as that. So these, we know, for instance, I, I mentioned the bradykinin channel because one of them, um, I'm sorry, histamine channel, uh, we actually did a series of experiments that was just published in, again, in Journal of Neurophysiology um, last, yeah, 2017. Roseanne Govea was my postdoctoral fellow at the time, and she did these experiments uh, with me. She did most of the physical experiments. And we looked to see whether the axons develop sensitivity to common inflammatory mediators when they were um, either inflamed, we just added more inflammatory focally to the nerve, to the axon, or when we simply block the axonal transport, which again we did in this case with vinblastine. And vinblastine is actually an anti-inflammatory drug, um, but they, both of these, the Freund's adjuvant, which is an immune-mediated inflammation, uh, much as what happens if you have tissue damage, and the vinblastine both led to sensitivity to these inflammatory mediators, uh, on, you know, again, ectopically. And we also showed that uh, these same methods, uh, applying vinblastine or applying bradykinin in the same time frame would block the histamine channel that would be the sensor. So we showed a buildup of the channel within the axons, and we showed an ectopic sensitivity to the chemical at the same time. We've done this with a, we just have a paper now with uh, a professor at University of Sussex in Brighton, UK, who was my postdoc back in 2005, I think, um, looking at specific mechanical, mechanical resp mechanically responsive channels. So we, we have a way to get to the root of finding out what the mechanoelectrical transductive element is, but we just haven't had, frankly, we don't have the interest with the peers, and we're not sure why. Um, perhaps this, this uh, podcast will help that, um, <laughs> but we're not sure why it doesn't 
it doesn't excite the reviewers enough for us to um, end up getting getting funded. And and of course, nerve inflammation is not considered a disease. And the funding agencies typically want you to address a specific disease with your research. Hmm. Wow. Uh, I'm finding the same things, by the way, a model of repetitive motor disorders. So it's, that's that's what we're funded to work on right now. Okay. Yeah, well, um, since you brought up repetitive motion disorders, um, I also wanted to ask, you know, you'd mentioned sciatica and radiating arm pain. What other kind of conditions might we be talking about with this inflammation leading to mechanical sensitization? Um, if you think about where the nervous system goes and you think about where we can have inflammation, this would not then be only the arms and legs although it could be the arms and legs. Um, take endometriosis, for example. Um, it turns out, and this is, this is kind of an interesting little story, at least I think so. I was at a, um, a friend's house in Massachusetts when I was working at Beth Israel and just visiting, and the, the, the woman who I was visiting was kind of bent over, and I said, oh, what's going on? She goes, oh, it's my sciatica's acting up. And I said, oh, you know, here I am, a chiropractor and her friend, and she's never told me she had sciatica. And I said, oh, you never told me about that. What's that from? I mean, what's that from? She goes, it's from my endometriosis. And a little light bulb popped off above my head, I think. And I asked her a little bit about it. I did some literature search, and I found case studies that link endometriosis with radiating leg pain or sciatica, and this is not something that an orthopedist is going to necessarily know about. And it's not something a family doctor is going to know about. And it's not something that an OBGYN is going to know about. So it's, it's something that kind of fell through. I ended up developing a way to model endometriosis on a nerve. Oh, and then basically the histology findings, if, if people look closely um, when they're doing a lap, laparoscopy for endometriosis, they often see the endometrioma come encircling the sciatic nerve in a little peritoneal pouch um, near the sacrum. So this endometrioma is sloughing and causing um, inflammation of the nerve phasically, and the women affected were um, having phasic radiating leg pain until it became constant and as the endometrioma grew. But anyway, I, I had the idea that I'd take a piece of rat uterus and transplant it to the sciatic nerve like a cuff. And I basically got, we had some troubles with histology. But I have a couple papers on um, endometriosis and sciatic inflammation. I also did a survey of women with endometriosis and found that something like 50% of them had radiating leg pain at some point. I didn't examine them, so I didn't know if they had it of a, of a back pain problem. But, you know, the back pain could be from the endometriosis as well in a referred pain manner. So that's one example. Another example is that you have to remember, and we all tend to forget it, we look at axons, as my good colleague David Seaman once told me, that the majority of, of us look at axons as lines in Kendall, Schwartz, and Jessel. Kendall, Jessel, and Schwartz. You know, it's a line in a book. And we also tend to forget that the sympathetic trunk and the, the splanchnic nerves, as well as the vagal, vagus and the pelvic 
parasympathetics, which we now find out aren't maybe parasympathetics, half of the axons in those nerves are afferent nociceptors. So if there's ectopic chemical sensitivities in a vagus nerve because of some kind of intraperitoneal or post-surgical problem that's firing signals into the central nervous system saying there's something wrong with an organ and there's nothing wrong with the organ, it makes sense that the body would react with efferent discharge in proportion to the signal that's coming to it, but it's errant signaling. And that's where, now I'm getting back to the visceral homeostasis part. But I, I think that it's very possible that um, a lot of the hard-to-diagnose or undiagnosable um, uh, abdominal and pelvic pain syndromes could be, I mean, it's feasible, and of course it's testable, it's possibly testable, to determine whether there's sites of inflammation more proximally, including paraspinal or uh, retropharyngeal, where the vagus nerve is coming through the neck. And this, again, gets right back to the original hypothesis I had about uh, homeostatic mechanisms. Um, and it's, it is quite testable, and I've been able to answer some of these questions, but it hasn't it hasn't translated, or it's not yet time to translate it um, into clinical studies. And frankly, the imaging and testing is seems to be on the horizon, but it seemed to be on the horizon for a very long time. And by that, I mean imaging sites of nerve inflammation has proven extremely difficult with resolution and contrast agents that are available. It's very, very difficult. Although uh, um, I just did have this... Um, fairly dramatic external neurolysis of my left median nerve and the nerve does not look normal didn't look normal before and it was very swollen and you could see um, the extent of the inflammation basically by virtue of it being quite swollen after the surgery and it still doesn't look normal and it's been three weeks since I had that done so there you can only move as fast sometimes as the technology lets you is what is what I'm saying. Gotcha. Hence the need, way to finish that diatribe. <laughs> hence, hence the need to be a good clinician, right? I mean, use your palpation skills and do what we know seems to to be right. available to us. So, for my for my talk at Parker, not the you know, since I'm not plugging it or anything, but I'm taking um could be a spoiler alert if anyone saw this before a Saturday. I'm taking two ball caps, and I'm going to put one, I'm going to mount a sign that says scientist, and on the other one, I'm going to mount a sign that says clinician. And I'm just going to change hats depending on what role I'm in, in the, <laughs> during my presentation. I think that's going to be well-received. <laughs> <laughs> well, some, something I wanted to, uh, to, to ask you about the inflammation process um something that i get really interested in are you know the day in day out activities that people do uh whether they exercise or or don't exercise uh you know what kind of things they eat if they're more more or less foods that promote inflammation or don't promote inflammation uh anti-inflammatory type foods you might call them what do you think uh, just the day in and day out activities, uh, how do you think they play with the, the kinds of 
mechanisms that you're describing. Um, and this, of course, if you don't, um, would be a David Seaman. If you know David Seaman, we talk about this all the time, and he's the author of the the Deflame Diet, and this is his his baby, and we've known each other for 25 years or something. Um, I think it's critical. Uh, I I think that most Americans are on a very pro-inflammatory. Their whole milieu is already set up to cause pain. Uh, they have a lot of arachidonic acid in their systems. I'm I'm not going to embarrass myself by saying that I know a lot about the biochemistry that goes on. And I'm also not going to try to pass off anecdotes as data, but the way that, and, and I'm not an organic food, well, we eat almost all organic foods because we grow them all. So our lifestyle is we want to eat good food that tastes good, that's prepared well, and most of it's been grown in our yard. And we, you know, we tend not, I, I don't get pain problems and I heal up real fast. So maybe that's, there's my anecdote of my N of one research, right? <laughs> uh, but I think it's, I think it's critical and obesity is like a huge cause of inflammation. We all know that. So if you keep your body mass index low and you keep your, what's supposedly pro-inflammatory fat, primarily fat intake uh, low, I think that you have, I, I believe I think there's enough evidence to support that you're less prone to getting into chronic pain situations. Uh, that also goes with stressful situations, uh, negative, negative stressful situations, the, the, the concepts of Hans Selye, the, the distress versus eustress, meaning distress, distress, and eustress, meaning a kind of good stressor. Like it's very stressful that I'm um, selling off a piece of property, but it's in a good way because it also, you know, gets rid of other debt. But one another part of electro of uh, neurobiology is that when we are under a load of stress or even when we're under uh, having quite a bit of pain, the autonomics um, change. There's a lot of plasticity that goes on in the nervous system. And um, we're just testing this in our rats that have repetitive motion disorder because I recently found out, and this is, um, I, I've collected the data, I haven't even started writing the paper, that the rats that develop these repetitive motion disorders in a procedure that Mary Barb developed where they voluntarily do a task and they get all the same symptoms, pathology, and everything else as people do when they do like working, working chronically in a a chicken processing plant or doing any repetitive task at, a, at a, any factory, a union worker, we call them union working uh, rats, they're getting neuro neuropathies in their median nerves, and for sure. And so I've asked her to look at the dorsal ganglia because one of the changes that happens with chronic pain, and I'm not sure with just psychological stress, is that the sympathetic nervous system will invade the dorsal ganglion and form what are called baskets around that the, the neurons that are in the dorsal ganglion. Now, those membranes could be sensitive to the, the sympathetic discharge. We don't, we don't know, but that, there has to be some reason that uh, arborization, the axons grow into the dorsal ganglion when they're normally just not there. And I've always, I've always wondered 
how that actually links those those animals findings link with um, human psychological stress uh, we all know that chronic pain is itself a psychological disease really we were taught that in our first abnormal um, psychology class that a person that has had chronic pain or pain for like six or eight weeks by definition has a psychological problem as well and I never forgot that and it seems to make sense I haven't learned anything um, as an academic to go against that point so. hmm. yeah that's that's really interesting uh, and your discussion just now about the sympathetics uh, leads me to want to talk about uh, one of the papers that you came up with, which was uh, focal nerve inflammation induces neuronal signs consistent with symptoms of early complex regional pain syndromes. Um, and in this paper, I learned that, uh, you know, when you have the type of inflammation that we've been talking about, it, it certainly seems to affect uh, the sympathetic nervous system. And one thing I, I didn't, maybe I just didn't, uh, uh, think about it previously, but it seems like it turns down the sympathetic nervous system. Yeah, that, that was, that was, um, see again, where do I publish those data, right? Do I publish it? And I'm not saying anything about, um, a chiropractic, any chiropractic journal, but I published that in Experimental Neurology. That's a really top-end journal, and I'm very proud of that. But I couldn't entitle it, this is part of nerve interference, right? Right. <laughs> like, this is consistent. But I can talk about it as being part of nerve interference. And I, it was one of those things. I got that, that study was funded by the Samueli Institute um, with a lot of help from Dr. Christine Gertz, who you probably, I think you've interviewed her, and she was the program officer at the time at, or no, she wasn't the program officer. She was a vice president. And she helped me get a private fund, you know, a grant from Samuel Institute to do that study. And I did try to go further with it. But again, I didn't get funded. And the review, the, the application was completely chiropractor related. And I, and I, again, I thought that, okay, if the sympathetic trunk is inflamed, as it does get inflamed by costovertebral joint inflammation, and we can see this on cadavers where uh, there's quite a lot of osteo, there are osteoarthrotic changes <clears throat> that deform the sympathetic trunk, and that, it, that alone is indicative of chronic inflammation. And by the way, the inflammation doesn't have to be inside the nerves. It can be, just be around the nerve because it's probably blocking the axonal transport. If it's inside the nerve, I think it's worse, and that's what's happening with our rats with uh, repetitive motion disorder. But to get back to the direct point of that paper, these are observational studies when they start. So it's just a look and see. And I was pretty surprised that there was less, um, like there was less discharge when the nerve was inflamed. And that's a peripheral nerve, but I don't, and I don't know what, I, what the splanchnic nerves or the sympathetic trunk, what that would lead to. But if we, if we combine data from the different papers, we can predict that 
inflammation of the sympathetic trunk, which would probably include part of the splanchnic nerves, you know, in the thoracic spine, would lead to increased discharge into the central nervous system and decreased uh, discharge to the end organ. Now, how, how those resolve to a dysfunctional organ would have to be tested by studying the organ when the nerve was inflamed. But that, that's the background for those papers. They really didn't have much to do with neurobiology. They were all about chiropractic. <laughs> and, chiropractic um, in disguise. It's, kind of, it's kind of ironic, that's all. Yeah. Yeah. And I told that to Wilfred Yannick when he came to visit. He wrote the commentary that you looked at. And I stopped him dead in his tracks. You know, we were having this talk about autonomics, and he's the, the guru of the autonomic world, uh, sympathetics especially. And um, he just looked at me like, you know, just he literally stopped as we were taking a walk. So he did stop in his tracks and said, You're kidding me. I said, Nope. <laughs> and by the way, Wilfred Yannick is uh, teaching a lot of the neurobiology of spinal manipulation now all over the world, <laughs> mostly oh, wow. in Europe. Wow. I didn't know that. Cool. Yeah. yeah he's, um, he'll, I don't, he's, he's retired from his lab. He's, he's, he's uh, elderly. He's a wonderful human, great scientist. Before we leave this issue of the complex regional pain syndrome and sympathetics, one thing that I was thinking about in this area, and you said you'd meant you had uh, worked with Mary Barb, uh, and I know uh, I've looked up some of her papers and read some of hers in the past, and I know she's done some work with uh, Lorimer Mosley and Paul Hodges, and and that Australian group seems to talk a lot about, you know, they, they make the point that pain is in the brain. And I don't think anybody would necessarily disagree with that, but is there any evidence, and it seems like you've done a lot of work in the peripheral uh, nervous system, is there any evidence suggesting that pain is uh, a perception that could take place in the periphery or, or at the spinal cord level? I think that that term, uh, pain is not an, how did it go? Um, pain is not an input to the brain, it's an output of the brain. That would seem consistent you know with them. Uh, you know what, I haven't heard it like that, but yeah. that seems consistent. I think that, I think that did more to damage the pain field than any one thing ever. Because it's neither. And, and the, the intention of that statement, the intention of that statement was really good. Um, Dr. Mosley was intending to get primarily physical therapists to understand. Um, now, remember, most of us, and I'll include every provider out there, has an embarrassingly poor knowledge of pain mechanisms. And this is something that the pain research field is really trying to change. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of work and there are a lot of changes going on. But to say that the pain is an output of the brain rather than an input, uh, the idea was to acknowledge with a catchy phrase that um, there's a difference between nociception and pain. And when I had patients come in and say, my doctor said my pain was all in my head. I said, it is. And they looked at me and I said, well, your pain is felt, you know, above your tentorium. You, you know, if, you, if we took that part of your, your nervous system out, you wouldn't have any pain. You'd still have nociception. Another thing that I tell people is that I can remove, 
your arm from your body, and I actually could do this, I could remove an arm from a body and maintain it separate from the creature and record no susception, but it wouldn't hurt because it wouldn't be, you, know, you wouldn't know that I was, you know, poking at your hand and causing nociceptor activity because it wouldn't be connected to your central nervous system. So the, uh, the idea was good, but to say that then you're going to treat the brain, basically, if you actually translated this concept, you'd have to quit practice because there wouldn't be anything for you to do because you can't, you, you, you can't directly treat the brain. But I, and there's another thing that I say that um, I haven't gotten very good results on, but in going to all these pain meetings, I came up with this um, actually earlier this year. I said, because there's another big push to study um, what is called the transition from acute to chronic pain, and I say that, or I propose that the transition from acute to chronic pain is misdiagnosis. Hmm. Laugh here. Yeah, no. No, I was yeah. more like, so, so, that, and, and, that's and, intense. Well, but here's a good example. I mean, about five weeks ago, I tore a part of my median nerve. And there was no doubt that I tore it. I've had, I've abused my hands for decades. You know, I renovated houses during chiropractic college. And I did a lot of logging work this spring. And then just like people will report how they herniated a disc, well, they really didn't pick up a sock and herniate their disc. They had chronic degeneration, and they did one small thing unguarded. In fact, I saw a book on my shelf uh, today called The Unguarded Moment by um, Vert Mooney, I think, and I think it was referring to these trivial things that can cause an enormous problem. Um, but, but they, of course, are just that one last straw, right? Right. So in my hand, I have all these snapping tendons over the nerve that aren't comfortable, and then I was was literally taking off a sock after hiking so it was hard to get off and I tore it I mean part of it just to my lateral thumb and it was it was brutal burning and then I developed severe allodynia um, over the lateral part of the you know the median nerve innervated part of my thumb and that's when I knew I needed to fast track the external neurolysis that because it wasn't and I knew it wasn't going to be like a little transverse carpal ligament lesion. So, but anyway, so that pain was the first thing that came back after the anesthesia wore off. And it's what I already mentioned. There'd be no one that could tell me exactly the, uh, the etiology of that pain. But if that pain hung around for six months, which I, I'm, I'm hoping it's still not gone. I'm just hoping it's dissipating. But I also had a kind of a swollen, hot, and dry thumb. So that's sympathetic. That means I had acute chronic regional pain syndrome. So the only thing to prevent that from being chronic was time. You see where I'm going with that? Yeah. So if we have, if we have patients with back pain and they present to us soon after they got it or they present to someone, let's say it doesn't get properly diagnosed and we still don't actually know how to differentially diagnose back pain and I tell I always say that the pain is a symptom it's not a diagnosis so if we don't have a you know if if the person goes through a lot of different treatments that are ineffective because there was perhaps a bad poor diagnosis 
or in a, in an adequate diagnosis or misdiagnosis, then they end up with chronic pain. So the transition there was just they didn't get the right treatment that they needed. It wasn't that they developed chronic pain. And I'm not so sure that they still wouldn't have what I'd call um, acutely uh, chronic acutely maintained pain. We've all also had patients that come in that they've been six months or a year or longer with their their painful condition, and then we treat them. And again, this is like multiple anecdotes, but they they the pain dissipates in association with our treatment, so they got better for one way or another. So did they have a did they have something that was maintaining their pain acutely? for a long time, like a chronic maintenance of their acute pain. So again, I think that, um, and to sum up this uh, long answer, um, I truly believe that it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater to assume that there's been a change in the brain when you actually don't yet have the tools to rule out that there's a maintained problem in the periphery. Well said. Well said. It's it's uh, something that I've thought about actually quite a bit because uh, there's lots of you know seminars and papers being written about it and and uh, you know I always think well it's interesting uh, and there's a lot of uh, you know good to it but it, uh, I'm sure it can't be the whole story. I mean there is a body to the brain. Sure. Right. And it's all connected, and we can't rule out, well, you can only rule it out when you really know you can rule it out. Exactly, exactly. So, um, you know, I... Mm -hmm. So I want to go keep going on some of this clinical stuff, because now I'm getting pumped up, uh, you know, hearing about uh, your hand and what happened and, and how we might be able to, you know, describe these sorts of things to chiropractors. Uh, so you we've talked about, uh, or you, you mentioned the term allodynia, what, what are the kinds of terms that you think clinicians, uh, chiropractors included, uh, maybe don't know well enough or don't differentiate well enough? And are there any m strange myths that uh, seem to permeate uh, our health professions? Yeah, I don't know if I can actually collect my thoughts well enough to say anything, but absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the what well, we get um we get stuck in our own belief systems and we we have a feedback cycle um where if it's actually a classic circular argument um that we we as clinicians first off we really really want to know what we're doing and we really don't know what we're doing mostly but if if we, let's say we want to do a treatment that we think is directed at fascia, you know, myofascial, ther uh, myofascial release, I like, I have a project that I want to do called does myofascial release, because we don't know if there's any physical effect at all. But let's say we say to ourselves, oh, I think the problem is coming with this bit of fascia. And then you say, well, if I do this, it should affect the fascia. And then the patient says that they got better. Well, the clinician, and this is nothing except normal human 
thinking will say, well, I treated the fascia, therefore, and the patient got better because I treated the fascia. That's going to reinforce something by process of circular reasoning when the fact is the person mobilized all sorts of different things. Uh, they might have done spinal manipulation at the same time or, per, or um, peripheral arthroidal manipulation. But if that was way, the way they went in and the patient got better, the majority of people would say it's because they had an idea of the treatment mechanism and the outcome supported the mechanism, which it didn't at all. And so we, we're in a constant myth. That, um, and the, the myth, and, and in fact, I'm, I'm working on uh, one of the talks I'll be giving soon is called Hypothesis and Dogma in Clinical Practice. And it basically talks about how we learn our belief systems, how um, I'm going to go a long thing about uh, how clinical effects and mechanism of action are almost unrelated. I'm going to talk about uh, data versus anecdote. I mean, there's, there's going to be some real, I hope, thought provocative um, topics in this uh, presentation, which I've done a, a version of uh, before. But mostly, I think that um, chiropractors and a lot of us who are treating people that have telling us they're having problems with their musculoskeletal system need to go back and um, learn a little bit of philosophy of science, but more learn how the peripheral nervous system works, review their anatomy, review their biomechanics, because in the end, that's what you really have is you have your, your own brain assessing a very complicated machine. You know, you learn, you learn the same thing if you're going to fix a car engine. In fact, it might be a good exercise for everyone to fix a car engine, figure out what's wrong with it, and fix it. So I, I've, I've been a firm, firm believer in, uh, beyond what they taught us in school, the basics that they taught us of biomechanics, um, anatomy, to extend that to include more soft tissue biomechanics, and then really go into the neurobiology of uh, the sensory system and even the autonomic system. I think that's the number one place where clinicians, chiropractors and clinicians of all types have, are, have their weakness. But it might not make that much different to their outcomes. It just might make them feel better about things, <laughs> which gets to a whole different topic, right? <laughs> that does. <laughs> we could talk about these topics all day. This is fun. Uh... <laughs> right. So... Uh... Some, yeah, some Mary other... Barra, my, I, back, back to her, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, no, you go ahead. Um, I'm, my, the, the research I'm doing now is um, Mary Barb and I are co-investigators um, on uh, a project that's supported by the National Center of Complementary and Integrative Health. And we've got two and a half more years and maybe a little more. I don't know. Depends on how we do, I guess. Um, but it's being... It's, it's an incredibly productive combination of this volitional model where these animals, I mean, they don't, it's not really a model. The animals actually develop the problem voluntarily, just like people who go to a factory develop these problems. And um, we know we can prevent it now. We can prevent everything that happens in these animals, including their neuropathy with simple soft tissue manipulation and mobiliz mobilization, excuse me. And uh, so we have, this is an ongoing, this is a long time coming and now long time coming collaboration that we're now formally funded 
to do this work, and I, I talk with her every few days. Well, this is, yeah, this is amazing. I want to, I want to follow up on that. I don't want to let that go. Uh, because I know you've, you've done studies, uh, in the past dealing with manual therapy and, uh, visceral manipulation in particular. Um, not sure about, uh, spinal manipulation, but maybe you can talk a little bit further about how you see, uh, manual therapy as a potential, you know, treatment or as you're suggesting, maybe even prevention. Well, yeah. And you know, the adage, or I think it's adage prevention is nine tenths of the cure seems to be um, most appropriate. Um, I have a book in my hand right now that I got because I'm just thumbing through it a little. It's called The Science of Manipulative Surgery. And this book was written by two chiropractors and published in 1955. And it's all about doing surgery in the abdomen and pelvis, bloodless surgery. And they don't acknowledge that they're chiropractors. They just say Dr. Fielder and Dr. Nelson. Um, and basically, so they had a whole system which is not really taught in the chiropractic profession at all. But I've talked to a number of practitioners who have started palpating around in the, in the guts, so to speak. And like you do with the um, skeletal system, you palpate for inappropriate movement or lack of movement and then you try to do things that make it move better and so a colleague of mine Susan Chappelle um, well she was more of a, a friend at that point and now she's a good colleague um, I watched her on Skype do this treatment to and she's a, a massage therapist in Squamish British Columbia and I watched her do a she wanted me to see this she did an abdominal treatment on a man that walked in with his pants unbuttoned with um, suspenders holding up his pants. And in a few minutes, she did some, it looked like a high-velocity, low-amplitude thrust down maybe towards his descending colon. And he, he jumped a little bit, and you know she took up the tissue slack and went in, and she goes, now what I think I did was which I really appreciated. And he just got up and buttoned his pants off and he, he buttoned his pants off and he was good to go. And I was like, what the heck was that, right? <laughs> yeah. And so we talked about it and I, I had, first off, it's like, I don't know if you can feel those things or not, but post-operative adhesions, 90% of people that have an abdominal surgery get post-operative adhesions and 10% of them get significant problems often leading to repeated surgeries. So it's the number one cause of small bowel obstructions. It's um, a massive cause of um, infertility and, and, and chronic pelvic pain and abdominal pain. So first I had her come over and I adapted a, a, a RAP model of post-operative adhesions and she could pick them out like she said they feel, you know, I did it blinded and she said this feels just like they do on people. And we ended up doing a study, got it published, did a study on post-operative ileus, got that published. We got a, a big R01 grant and did a number of studies. And basically, it comes down to um, a four-word phrase, movement good, stasis bad. So that's consistent with chiropractic right from the get-go. If you keep things moving well and fluid, 
and not stuck to each other, they function better. So if we move forward to, and, this, and the mobilization or the visceral manipulation or whatever you want to call it, I'm just trying to use the phrase manual therapy, um, prevented the adhesions from becoming so bad. Um, and it was probably just by keeping them moving while they were healing, which only takes a few days, actually, even on people, the mesothelial layer is the layer of the peritoneum that's opposed to the other layer. The parietal and visceral peritoneal surfaces are covered with mesothelium. Uh, when those two layers are damaged, they secrete glue. But if you keep it just like in carpentry, if you glue up two pieces of wood and then you slide them back and forth while the glue sets, they don't stick. So you clamp them. And after surgery, usually abdominal surgery, you're on some kind of medication and you're lying in bed and your guts aren't working anymore. And that's why they wait till they hear bowel sounds because your gut's working again before they let you out. But usually that is too late. So our idea was to translate this directly into the clinic by getting immediate um, regular mobilization of the intestinal contents, which used to be done in osteopathic uh, hospitals. Um, and, you know, that could be a good clinical trial. But the concept um, is now applicable to the repetitive motion disorder, um, repetitive motion disorders, which are character <clears throat> characterized by a post-inflammatory, repetitive motion disorders <clears throat> are characterized by post-inflammatory fibrosis within the nerves, surrounding the nerves, and in the uh, interfaces or the spaces between the muscles and the nerves and the tendons. Just like I had corrected in my median nerve a few weeks ago, which now is probably getting more fibrotic, even though I'm trying to practice what I preach. So the common denominator here is that keeping things moving immediately, like do doing the preventive manual therapy, which is uh, something that has always been espoused as, quote, maintenance care, unquote, Pre preventing things from either a pattern of poor movement or just to prevent the fibrosis from building up is seems to be a common mechanism for post-operative uh, intraperitoneal adhesions and for the repetitive motion disorder. So we may have we are the the manual therapies for the repetitive motion disorder seems to have led to insight about the general mechanism of development of the repetitive motion disorders which I think is awesome. And it that is awesome. That is awesome. The right combination of investigators and the right situation and intention to do it, right? Absolutely. And uh, when you finish those studies, uh, I'd love to have you back on to talk about all that. Sounds great. Yeah, and, sure. Yeah, and you know, one, one thing... ten years. No. Yeah, ten years. <laughs> Exactly. Well, <laughs> so, something I was thinking about when you were talking about the fibrosis, uh, I was thinking about Greg Kramer's work, who's looked at facet joint uh, gapping and how adhesions develop very quickly mm -hmm. uh, in in rat models, as well as in human, it seems like, at least with the, the gapping part. And then, so I'm wondering, you were talking about the costovertebral joints. I'm wondering, okay, what about the costotransverse joints, the Z joints, and how all these things relate to uh, the ectopic inflammation that you were 
uh, talking about. I'm sure they could be potential mechanisms. Does, does that sound right, or am I off the track here? Yeah. No, um, Dr. Kramer's done some really nice work, and do you know the model that Chuck Henderson developed with literally bones out of place causing uh, fibrotic changes in the vertebral column even after he he'd had he had a model that um, seemed to have fizzled out and then he retired um, I thought it was the best model in chiropractic yeah where I he think, essentially put I a think device. Greg was I think Greg was uh, a part of that one actually yeah, Greg yeah, and that's, Chuck. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. Yeah. So okay. So they'd like. I mean, if you take your three fingers with your middle finger and you shove a, you know, a, a popsicle stick down to put two spinous processes in this in one case one way and the other the other way, and let the animal move around like that um, for a long time, they get fibrotic facet joints, and that's kind of what we think people have. But again, we know these occur, but we don't know how to image them. And Linton Giles, who's another of the uh, stellar neurobiologists uh, who came out of a very short window of time in the 80s out of Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, did an entire um, a, a body of work on uh, facet joint inclusion bodies and capsular changes and I think innervation as well. Um, so maybe spinal manipulation, one of the, and again, this is a testable hypothesis, it's just I don't think we can test it yet, is that maybe we're taking a joint that we think isn't moving well and simply busting up adhesions around the, the capsule that affect the uh, joint space or affect the movement. And we just don't know these things. It's, it's, uh, it's a shame. I mean, it's, it's actually, when you get down to it, we're at, the, we're at, ground, we're at ground zero with uh, research into these issues. And we just haven't had the benefit of having enough researchers to do the work, um, let alone the methodology to um, accomplish it. And so building that critical mass of researchers that can, I mean, who's going to, who at NIH is qualified to review these grant applications even if we had the people to submit them? I mean, things have changed a lot in the last 20 years, don't get me wrong, but still, it hasn't been 100 years, it's been like 20 years. Right. Right, and um, so there's a, there's there's a long way to go, but there's a lot of promise. But again, um, like I said, I separate the uh, separate the clinical effect from the mechanism. Showing how something works might not change the practice one little bit. It just might support it, so we get paid better, or more people can benefit from the practice, which that's that's a good advancement. But I mean, the practice of chiropractic hasn't changed since I've been a you know, the actual treatments haven't changed at all that I know of. Right. And we know which one, we, we all kind of seem to agree on which one works the best, and that's spinal manipulation. <laughs> you know, manipulating joints seems to be the most powerful uh, tool in our toolkit. And I, I, I still believe that, but again, I just said the word believe as opposed to know that. That's, that's my belief. Yeah, it's hard yeah. to separate out uh, your personal bias. Well, it Very yeah, difficult. yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll put my bias in here. Um, I agree with that, and and it, it's funny because when, when you, you hear <laughs> well, yeah, when you, when you hear other scientists, uh, I kind of chuckle when I hear scientists say, "Oh yeah, you know this is 
you know, my unbiased opinion. Well, where do, how does that work? Because, uh, yeah, because nobody <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> yeah, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, what's the mechanism for that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you, uh, you, you hit upon uh, a topic which uh, I want to start to close with, and that is how we get more chiropractic researchers out there so we can have these reviewers, so we can do the kind of studies you're talking about. Because I wholeheartedly agree that there are some questions that are important to answer, but we probably just, we can't design the studies. We don't have the tools or what have you. Uh, We're not quite there yet. And so again, I'm going to say my bias, my bias is we need more chiropractic researchers. So that's one of the goals of this podcast to motivate and assist practitioners and students to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to these aspiring folks who may wish to become chiropractic researchers? Well, I worked really hard to try to get other people into research. Um, There are, uh, Brian Budgel and I are two of the last remaining neurobiologists. And the, the, we, we, we do need clinical, you know, outcome trial, clinical efficacy, scientists that are going to be doing epidemiological studies, um, studies like that. But the basic sciences can be, you know, very strongly supportive. But I'll tell you, the one word answer is don't go into, or don't. Um, science is hard. It's really, really hard, and it's really, really frustrating. Uh, the the time that seems to make it worthwhile is when you observe something that you know no one else in the world knows about, and just can't wait to share it. And you've you've now you've 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 created new information, and that is a real precious thing. And a, and I consider it quite a privilege to have uh, been able to do that. Like right now, I'm I'm like. I, I, I don't have, I haven't had the time to get this paper together. We don't have all the data, but no one else except you and the people who I hope listen to this and a few other people I know, know, for instance, that repetitive motion disorder is characterized, at least at this level, by a true neuropathy, like a neuropathic, the nerve has a pathology within it. And knowing that, we can also predict then the recovery and what, and maybe how to help the recovery. So it's not trivial, but, the, but that's actually only part of the point. I'm really excited about that. I've been doing this for 30 years about, and now I'm extremely excited about this paper and sharing that information. So, you know, but at least the pay's not really good and it's hard, you know. Basically, you get, um, you have to, it's a very, very tough career, um, especially in, uh, the basic sciences, because it's just, it's, it's hard to get a program going. It takes, there's no way around it except to do a separate PhD, and that's the only place that you can get really in a position where you can address the questions that you have, as opposed to working on someone else's stuff, which I had the privilege of having a very liberal uh, PhD advisor who let me do what I want. And I, in fact, I was 94. I finished with him. I'm going out to work with him in a few weeks. So, you know, you make lifelong colleagues. You have um, a lot of interesting, you meet a lot of interesting people and you learn a lot. 
but it's real hard. And I, I tried to get fellows, uh, like a fellowship program, and there was going where I'd take people, and I had a couple announcements for this, that, and just no one was really interested into going into basic science. And um, NIH had responded. One of my uh, good friends and co-authors and colleagues, Matt, Matthew Davis, who's now at University of Michigan Nursing School, he did get a fellowship to, uh, from National Institutes of Health. And during that fellowship, he got his PhD from Dartmouth while he was being paid by an NIH fellowship. So that worked out great for him. And when that announcement was made, I actually contacted the profession and tried to find somebody who would come work with me. And they were paying, you know, they were paying about 70000 a year with some benefits as a fellow for like three or four years. And I, there was nothing. So there might be more interest on our side than there is on the student or potential researcher side is what I'm getting at. It takes a, a very unique kind of mindset to go, want to go into research as opposed to, in a way, directly helping people with patient care, which, of course, that's awesome, right? Oh, yeah, it's awesome. It's but I think, so, I think some people might say that's a tough go, too, being in practice. You're in practice, aren't you? Yeah, part-time. So you're, yeah, so you're balancing. You're trying to, um, and I've, I've been in practice periodically. I have a treatment office at my house. But, you know, people don't show up. Rats always show up. <laughs> they never have problems paying. They always pay their bills. They're not you know, tardy? And they don't complain. They're not tardy? Nope. So <laughs> there's a lot of advantages to working with rats. <laughs> I cracked myself up. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, um, the the people in uh, Texas are going to have fun uh, hearing about all your <laughs> interesting <laughs> research, and uh, I, I really appreciate I'm you. I'm trying to keep it light. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, you know, you got to have fun doing this stuff. You know, that's why I do these if podcasts. If you're not having fun, it's just not worth it. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I get to talk what's with... What's the sense if you're not having fun? I ta get to talk with uh, All sorts you know, of really <laughs> interesting people like yourself. And <laughs> it's just, you know, I get to do... I get to marry all the interests, the, the practice of chiropractic, yeah. the research, and it's just fun stuff. So thanks so much for coming yeah, on I today. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I really... Yeah, it's been all my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you yeah, so much for Thank you so me. much. Thanks for tuning in to this episode with Dr. Jeffrey Bove. Stay tuned for more episodes coming up where we get to talk with the best in chiropractic research.